Today is Advent Sunday, and in the traditional church calendar, that marks the start of a season of Advent, which is like a, a period of waiting and longing for the return of Jesus Christ as King. So in the traditional church calendar, it's not, it's not time to celebrate yet. It's more like a time of waiting and hope and desperation. And therefore, it's quite a good time for us to reflect on the impact of the incarnation on the whole world, the, or the impact of the coming of Christ, the impact of God becoming flesh to live with us on all of creation and what God has done in the person of Jesus for the whole world. Now, most of us don't probably initially think that way. When, if I said to you, what's the impact of Christmas? Most of us would talk probably individually or maybe corporately, but be very unlikely to talk about the impact of Christmas on the whole world. But as an individual, we'd probably say something like, yeah, well, Christmas means that God has come to save me from my sins, or God has come to restore me to relationship with God, or reconcile me to God, or show me how much God loves me, or something like that. And we might also see it not just individually but corporately and might say, yeah, this is what um, Mary and Zachariah do. When they sing in the Bible, when they hear Jesus is going to be born, they, they start saying things like, oh, he's thrown down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. He's come to turn the world upside down in human society. He's come to his people and redeem them is what Zachariah says. So this sort of corporate dimension about what God will do. And that's also contained in the names that Jesus Christ is given. He's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So there's a corporate dimension. Or he's given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this kind of corporate dimension. And so if I said to you, what does Christmas do? What's it for? He'd probably answer a mixture of what it does for individuals and what it does for the people of God. But what I think we probably think about far less, in my experience, is the impact of the incarnation on creation as a whole, on the sky, on the earth, on the hills and the mountains and the rivers and the heavens and the creatures who live there. And that's what I want to look at today, and that's what we're going to look at a bit through this year's Advent and Christmas theme. So if you've got your Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is probably an unusual Christmas passage, but I think it's a mighty one. I'll try and explain why. But so this year, as we Mark Advent, and then as we celebrate Christmas, we're going to take as our theme, Heaven and Nature Sing. And it's a, it's a line taken from Isaac Watts's 300-year-old hymn, Joy to the World. And it's a, a line that indicates that what's happening, at, what's happening with the coming of Christ to the world is the joining together of a heavenly song with an earthly one. The idea that actually creation itself sings in response to the coming of the Saviour. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. So not just let every heart, but let the whole world, let nature and heavens sing. Joy to the world, the saviour reigns. Let men their tongues employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sound in joy. And the song goes on like that. It, it's very explicitly an invitation to the whole of creation, every creature, to sing as its king comes to the earth, not just an invitation for those of us who are followers of Jesus or even for human beings to do that. And so we're going to start by reflecting on the, the cosmic Christ in that sense, the, the impact of the coming of Christ on all of creation, not just on humans. And we're going to start with the very first prophecy of Christmas, so that we can see who and what Jesus came to save. And that first prophecy of Christmas 
is in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shan't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. This is the word of God. It's a very familiar story, probably even to those of us who don't go to church normally, certainly to those of us who do. And human beings are tempted to become like God. So instead of submitting to God's wisdom, we decide that we will be the judges of what really constitutes good and evil. We'll, we'll decide that, thank you. We don't want God telling us, that's good, that's evil. That's a tree you can have, that's not. We said, no, 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 we're going to decide that, thank you, Lord. We'll be the, the judges of good and evil, even if that position of independence and autonomy separates us from God. That's what human beings do. We are offered the choice of happiness following God or independence becoming God and we choose independence. That's what human beings did. That's what human beings have been doing ever since. Frank Sinatra put it very well. For what is a man? What has he got if not himself 
then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. It's a summary of Genesis 3 in a way. So I had the option of bowing the knee and finding everlasting joy or of becoming God myself, taking the blows and doing it my way. And I thought, yes, thanks, even if it makes me miserable, at least I'm in charge. Or you might say in better poetry, in the words of W.E. Henley's poem Invictus, which I think states this really well as well. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't matter how many punishments this brings. If I'm in charge, it's worth it. That's what human beings did in the garden. And we've been doing it ever since. And so God, in this passage, gives humans what they want. They desire the knowledge of good and evil rather than the joys of life with God, and that is what they get. C.S. Lewis has this lovely line in one of his uh, Narnia stories in The Magician's Nephew, where he says, all get what they want. They do not always like it. It's very profound, I find. All get what they want. They don't always like it. And that's what the story of Eden is about in many ways. And as a result, the world ever since has been tainted by sin and by death. Sin being the spiritual and the moral fallout of trying to become gods ourselves. And death being the separation of humans from God that results. And therefore the separation of humans from life that results from being separated from God. In just 200 words, this passage, this, op this opening section of this chapter turns the tables on every human effort to blame someone else for what's wrong with the world. And of course, that's what these people do, and it's what we all do. It's the woman's fault, it's the snake's fault, it's someone else's fault, it's not me. But actually, this chapter is brilliant as a story to just turn the tables and effectively make you ask the question, did I do this? Is this me? Like that great Mitchell and Webb sketch where those sort of SS officers are sort of suddenly look at their caps and see the skulls on, the, on their caps and ask each other, are we the baddies? It's just what, that's what this chapter does. It makes you go, um, are we the baddies? Like, I didn't realize this, that I'm responsible. I, I am daily making the kind of choice that this chapter describes. And God responds to the arrival of sin and death in his world in two ways. He gives a, a curse of judgment and he gives a promise of salvation. The judgment curse he gives to the man and the woman. And he says, this, this sin you've done has consequences. It's going to mean pain in childbearing, conflict in relationships, frustration in work, futility in creation, and death. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's got consequences for the man and the woman. It's got consequences for the home and the workplace. It's got consequences for everybody. And that's the judgment curse. But he also gives a salvation promise, a promise of rescue. And the fascinating thing about that promise is that it isn't given to the humans, it's actually given to the snake or the serpent before he even speaks to the people. It's extraordinary that the first promise of Christmas, the first promise of hope and salvation in Scripture, in history, is given to the serpent. The Lord says, I will put enmity, hatred, battle, conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed or offspring or descendant. He shall bruise your head, he says to the snake, and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to snap at his feet. He's going to crush your head. And in that promise, in that declaration to the serpent, to, as Christian theologians have almost always said since, to the devil, God speaks this word of judgment and says, the day is coming 
when a child, a seed born of the woman, is going to come and crush your head and destroy the sin and death that you've brought into the world with you. History from this point on, God is saying, will be marked by conflict between serpent-like enemies and the child of the woman. And you can see that all the way through Genesis, all the way through Exodus and beyond. And you can see this battle running. The enemies of God will try and destroy the child, the promised child, or the promised children, the children of Israel. Pharaoh, Goliath, Ahab, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Satan, all of them, they're all going to try and crush the seed, but the child ultimately is going to crush them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I call this the first promise of Christmas. That's what it is. So why has that got anything to do with Christmas? And the reason is because the fall, which we've just read, is the reason for the nativity. The reason why the nativity happens is because the fall happened. The garden is the reason for the manger. The purpose of Christmas is to overturn the curse of sin and death that came in in the garden. And by that, I mean all of it, not just the bit that relates to human beings' relationships. So this is the first reference to the incarnation or to Christmas in Scripture. In some ways, if you're really pushing it, you could say Genesis 3.15 is the first Christmas carol, right? It's, it's in poetic form in Hebrew, and you see it probably laid out like that in your English Bible. And it, so in a sense, it's almost like a poem or a song of celebration that God, having put enmity or conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman is going to triumph and cross the head of the snake even though the snake tries to bite his heel. That's like a Christmas carol. You, oh Satan, will fight a continuous battle against the woman seed, or something like that. It's like this a weird, but yet beautiful in its way, song of the permanent conflict between these two characters and how the woman seed, the child, will one day win. But notice that the curse that Jesus comes, that the woman's seed comes to overturn, is not just a, something that affects individual human beings. It's blighted the whole of creation with futility and frustration and fruitlessness and death. It's not just human beings are estranged from God, although obviously that's the tragic consequence in the story. But actually, as we've already seen, it affects all of creation. So verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So it's not just that human beings have become sinners. It's that the garden has become a wilderness, this land of abundance and delightful fruit has turned to thorns and thistles and pain and sorrow and blood, and toil, tears, and sweat. You see, it's the, it's the land. It's the, the stuff, the physical stuff of creation, the stuff that when you leave this building, walk around outside, look at the sky, touch a tree. That world, the real world, not just human beings in some sort of you know, bubble-wrapped spiritual space, but the created order has been thrown out of shape by this thing the humans have done and the sin and death that has come in with it. And of course, the point is that that's what happened in the fall. And therefore, that is the curse that Jesus, when he arrives in the manger, has come to overthrow. That's what Isaac Watts saw so clearly in Joy to the World. And it's why we've made it our theme this year. Here's the verse in the hymn. You might, I mean, I, I was just the other day, actually, I was 
on my way to, to preach at the Catford site last Sunday. I parked my car as I often do. I stopped at a Cafe Nero in Chislehurst and I just parked, I had to, they were doing road work, so I had to park somewhere I don't normally and I walked past the church which just had two banners outside. Joy to the world, said one of them, great. And the next one said, let every heart prepare him room. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because we've picked a different line from that song. But that, the verses they'd chosen were, joy to the world, the world should celebrate and let every individual make a response, which is right. We definitely need to do that. Gonna ask people to do that during this series. But interestingly, the, the breadth of what most of Isaac Watts' song is about is actually the response of creation. So yes, human beings need to respond, but so does the whole world. And the verse that we often miss is verse three, which often people don't know, but it's beautiful. And it alludes back to Genesis three. Here's what he wrote. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's beautiful writing. He's saying, joy to the world, the Lord's come, let earth receive a king, let every heart receive him, prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. But then says, no more let these thorns and these sorrows and these, this pain that's got into the ground, no more let that be there either because the Lord Jesus comes to make his blessings flow everywhere the curse had been found, not just in human relationships, but in creation. And often our vision of Christmas is a bit small. We see it as the start of forgiveness for us, which praise God it is, but we miss that it's also the start of the healing of the whole world so that heaven and nature might sing together in praise. God in Christ does not merely create new hearts and a new life. He creates new heavens and a new earth. Let me illustrate the point. So the Shawshank Redemption I'm sorry, if you haven't seen the end, I'm gonna ruin it for you, okay? So just, you must leave, leave now, but it's just such a magnificent film, nearly 30 years old now, so if you haven't seen it yet, you may not. But the Shawshank Redemption doesn't finish with the, the escape from prison of Tim Robbins. It doesn't finish at that moment. It could have done, and that would have been a nice, interesting film because he was, you're invested in his character and you hope he gets out and you think, oh, this is looking bad for him, and then he gets out. And, but it doesn't stop with that, and if it did, it would, I think, be a kind of unsatisfying story. Because that would be like the Shawshank escape, not the Shawshank redemption. Something in us, in the story, the way the characters are narrated, makes us want something more than simply that he gets out. That would be exciting and interesting, but it wouldn't ultimately be satisfying. What makes the movie satisfying, and one of those films you never forget, and one of those films many people put on their top 10 lists, is the fact that everything gets healed. Right? The warden faces justice, the truth comes out, debts are settled, the prison gets restored, Morgan Freeman gets a parole, he reaches Mexico, he is reconciled with Andy on the beach, and then the camera pans back as if to say, all is well. Every element of this story that has been tainted by sin and grimness and death and judgment has now been healed, and that's why the film strikes such a powerful chord with us. It's, a very, it's actually a very Christian story. Um, and we stand back and say, that's what redemption is. I don't just want an escape. I want hope. I want redemption. I want the, world, the sad things in the world to be undone. And redemption is not achieved until all of the effects of the curse have been undone. And of course, in the same way, Jesus comes, not merely that you and I might escape this world, 
And some Christians almost tell the story like that. The world's a mess. The world, there's no real hope for that. But don't worry, you and I will get out of it one day and go to heaven. It's like, no, that's, that's not big enough as a gospel. What Actually, what God has come to do is to redeem the whole of the creation. And that's why fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy because they can see that in this child in the manger is one who has come to redeem everything and not just the souls of human beings. Let me give you another illustration from another very Christian story, an even more Christian story. So towards the end of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, if you know the story at all, Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure, offers himself as a sacrifice for Edmund and then rises from the dead. And at that point, it would be perfectly possible for the story to jump from the resurrection of Aslan straight into the battle with the White Witch or even for the two girls who have been waiting for Aslan to just go back to where the lamppost is and go back through the wardrobe and back into England. Like it would work, that, that again, that would be a, a perfectly, perfectly normal way of resolving a story that the girls get out and they're safe and in the end it's okay, but it, the story doesn't end like that. What happens next, and when I used to read this as a child, I was kind of found this couple of chapters a little strange, but what happens is instead, Aslan, having risen from the dead, goes straight to the White Witch's castle, where there are dozens and dozens of characters, some of them we know, some of them we don't, who've been turned into stone. I'm sorry, that's me doing an impression of something turned into stone. But they've been turned into stone and they're awaiting, in a sense, metaphorically, they're awaiting freedom. And Aslan comes up to each of these statues and breathes his life into them and they come back to life. And one by one, these fauns and giants and lions and centaurs and all of these creatures get restored to life and they become part of Aslan's army. And Aslan then goes and fights battle with all of these renewed creatures to destroy the witch and everything she's done and bring healing to the whole of Narnia. See, Aslan's endgame was always bigger than rescuing the children. We're invested in the children, so we want them to be okay. But that wasn't enough for Aslan. He wanted to heal the whole world and redeem all of Narnia. And we've known that all along in the story, ever since Father Christmas turned up and the snow started melting. When Earth receives her king, you might say, the witch's power cannot hold back spring, and heaven and nature sing. No more shall flowers be drowned in snow, nor creatures turned to stone. He comes to make his blessings flow to all he calls his own. And that's what happens at Christmas. That's what Christmas is. It's the beginning of the end of the curse of sin and death, which has mired not just human beings, but the whole of creation in frustration and decay. So the pain of the woman in childbirth is transformed into the joy of a woman giving birth to the Christ. The curse on the ground producing thorns instead of fruit is turned into a fountain of blessing that will ultimately fill the wilderness with flowers and turn graves into gardens. In Jesus' case, literally, where the ground will effectively give birth to a risen Christ who will come to renew the world. And the serpent, who in the garden caused human beings to say, not your will but mine, will be crushed by the child in the manger, the true human who will be tempted in another garden and say, not my will, but yours be done. Joy to the world, the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scope of the gospel. 
We thank you so much for the breadth and range of what Jesus Christ came to do. And I pray that those of us who are followers of Jesus would see that in a richer and deeper way this year than we have before. And those of us who are not would be invited to join in that song that heaven and earth sing together. Lord, even in a moment as we come to communion together and as we come and instead of taking and eating the fruit that the snake tempted us with, we take and eat the body and blood of the Lord Jesus and find healing and life as we do. And I pray that we would join in that song and the earth would sing together with heaven this Christmas and this Advent at the marvel and scale of what you came to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.